Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, (laughs) Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame pulled away from Purdue late in Saturday's game to give the Irish a 27-13 victory. It was the most comfortable win of the season for the Irish, who have been pretty shaky in their 3-0 start. But they can put all of that behind them on Saturday with a big-time matchup with number 18 Wisconsin in Chicago's Soldier Field. A two-game series between the two Midwest powers was delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, rather than meeting last year, the, the Irish and Badgers will now play in Green Bay's Lambeau Field in 2026. One of the men who made the series happen was kind enough to spend some time with us today. That's former Wisconsin Athletic Director and Hall of Fame coach Barry Alvarez. Barry, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Good to be with you guys. Barry, as someone who spent time in South Bend as a coach for three seasons under Lou Holtz, how important was getting this two-game series between Notre Dame and Wisconsin scheduled? And, and given that you had to wait an extra year for the first game to happen, how fulfilling will this weekend be? Well, last year was a rough year for everyone. Um, I, I really, Jack has been great to work with, and Notre Dame has been great to work with. And we, we worked hard to to put this game together, and I'm glad that last year's game was able to be rescheduled. Um, two, two really uh, good football programs. You know, we all know about the history and tradition at Notre Dame, and um, you know, we built, you know, our, we, we're babies compared to the history they have. But, uh, you know, our most recent history is solid. And I just felt the two would this would be a good matchup. Both set, both uh, fan groups uh, would 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 enjoy this. It's close. You could travel to both games special for the for the players to play in pro stadiums. It's uh, it, it's really neat to do that. Coach, did you consider um, when you were coaching Wisconsin, uh, asking your athletic director to do this earlier, <laughs> did you have any desire to do that while you were, were actually coaching still? Um, you know, I, that really never came up. Okay. Um, you know, you know how that goes. You're scheduled out so far in advance um, uh, that it really never came up. Uh, but I, I, when I took over and, and, and really got involved more in the scheduling and, 
and looking uh, ahead to schedule, I, I just felt it would be natural and easy for our fans to get there and, and, and something that both, both teams would, would enjoy and get excited about. The, the game this year has an added wrinkle in that Jack Cohn is the starting quarterback in Notre Dame as a former Wisconsin quarterback. What do you think of how Jack has played for Notre Dame and the opportunity he's getting to play against Wisconsin this weekend? Well, let me just say, Jack Cohn is a, is a class individual. Um, he carried himself extremely well when he was here, uh, had a nice career here, comes from a good family. I mean, great people. And you know, when he left or as he was making a decision to leave, he even called me. I know he was uh, uh, forthright with Paul and, and his and the teammates and staff, but uh, went out of his way to contact me and tell me about his decision to move. And And I told him, you know, you're making a great decision. Uh, it's an un unbelievable school. And I wished him very well. I, I wished him all the best because he, he's a quality kid. I like the way he's playing right now. Uh, doing a nice job and you know he's done good things uh, he's played four quarter games games coming down to the wire and he's he's showed a lot of composure to make things happen and finish up in a positive note Barry um, I was at the press conference when you and Jack were in Chicago and I think we asked you guys at the time but do you think at some point there might be a desire to maybe repeat the series only this time being at Camp Randall and Notre Dame Stadium? I think that would be appealing. Um, I won't have anything to say about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure when we finish that game next year, um, you know, that uh, Jack and Chris McIntosh, uh, our current athletic director, one of my former players and, and deputy athletic director, I'm sure there could be some discussion about that, something that they should at least visit, visit about. Barry, this Wisconsin team has looks to have a very strong defense, and I'm sure that has a lot to do with uh, Jim Leonard being continuing to be the defensive coordinator for Wisconsin. How important has it been keeping him with the Badgers, and what makes him so successful? Well, you know, Jimmy, uh, I, I can remember when uh, Jimmy left pro football. I think he played 11 seasons. He looks like, you know, when you meet Jimmy, you think, he's going to get ready to go take his driver's test. You know, he looks like <laughs> 16 years old, you know, and, and, uh, but he had a great career. He was a walk on here, made, he was a two time all American left here with the all time big 10 leading uh, punt returner and uh, signed as a free agent in the NFL. I don't think anybody gave him much chance and played 11 years and, and was a very, very good player. He was a quarterback of everybody's defense wherever he played. Uh, so when he came in, you know, he didn't know what he wanted to do. And, uh, you know, he worked with our football staff and, you know, just broke down films and, and try to figure out what he was going to do in the future. And I can remember, uh, you know, when, when Paul had a chance to hire him, you know, I said, if Jimmy wants to coach, he'll do, be a great coach. I happen to have an older grandson played for him and, and I can remember him coming to me after the, about the third day he said grandpa we just had a two-hour meeting it seemed like it lasted 10 minutes you know he really relates well to the kids and uh, has an unbelievable mind uh, very intelligent very football smart um, so when he had a chance to be coordinator Paul asked 
what I thought. I said, if Jimmy wants to be the coordinator, he'll be a good one. Had chance, he had a chance to take some head jobs last year, and people came to me and asked, and I said, if he wants to be a head coach, he'll be a head, good head coach. Um, so I, I just I couldn't be more impressed with him. He, he communicates well with his team. Uh, they're always very – they're sound. Uh, they play fast. I think he he's, does some unique things, some things differently than everyone else. And I think sometimes that, that creates problems for offenses that we're facing. So um, really, you know, really pleased with uh, the job he's done here. Barry, when I first got into um, this business, I was covering the Big Ten and did for like the first 12 years of my career. And Wisconsin wasn't very good when I started. Um, you weren't there yet, um, and they were struggling. I think they might have had six losing seasons up until when you took over. And, you know, I was familiar with you from Notre Dame because I was at the South Bend Tribune. But but what was your, what was your model that made you so successful at a place that really didn't have success and that didn't have great recruiting population and, and that kind of thing? Uh, to kind of sustain, you know, maybe a big influx of talent right away. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can remember when I told coach, coach Holtz, I was going to take the Wisconsin job. He said, don't take that job. I'll get you a good job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he was really, he, he, I had to explain to him what my thoughts were, but, you know, I recruited up here. I coached in the big 10 um, for eight years when I was at Iowa, I recruited the big 10 area both when I was at Iowa and um, when I was at Notre Dame. Um, I knew the high school coaches up here. There was a coach on our staff at Notre Dame, our secondary coach, Chuck Heater, who had been an assistant here for Dave McClain. And Chuck really kept me abreast of what was going on here and explained the situation, um, what the issues were. And, and one of the major, major issues here was the good players were leaving the state. And Dave McClain kept – for the most part, kept most of them here. Mm -hmm. And so I had top two committed to Notre Dame already. And, you know, the, I looked at Iowa's roster. They were they were going to the Rose Bowl that year. And they had, I think they had 11 in the two deep from Wisconsin. Uh, Michigan had a number of their top players. So, you know, I, I just felt that the state, you know, this state that price puts out uh, eight to ten probably eight, play, eight division one, solid division one players a year. Uh, but there's another group of walk-ons. I felt like we could build a walk-on program. Um, I knew the Midwest. I knew some other areas that we could go out to. I knew I could put a, a staff together that knew the big 10, knew how to recruit for the big 10. Um, and then, you know, uh, I, I just felt very confident that, uh, you know, I could put a program together if I had good support. From, and I had a new administration. Uh, Pat Richter was a new athletic director who really wanted to win. He's a former player here. Donna Shalala wanted to win. That's why they made a change. They wanted to get their athletic program, football program straight. And uh, I, I just I just felt very confident. I had I had great mentors, and, and especially Coach Holtz was wonderful for me um, and worked with Hayden Fry and played for Bob Devaney. So I had good people behind me. I'd been – I've been successful every place I've been. And I just felt that I, I had a formula that I could put together. I like the fact there's one division one school in the state 
that helps with the walk-on program. So all those things uh, put together. The fact I knew the high, the high school coaches, I knew I thought I thought I could get them in my corner and help me keep the good players at home, and that's what what, what we were able to do. When you went to Wisconsin, did you ever think you might want to go back to Notre Dame at some point, and did you ever have that opportunity and and pushed it away? You know what? I I never uh, I was never offered that opportunity. Coach Holtz did call me the day the day before he he retired and told me he was going to recommend me. But he, as he followed up, that would be the kiss of death. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was never offered the opportunity. I had a chance to go just to a lot of places. Uh, when we turned it around, went and won the first Rose Bowl, and the fact that we sustained things, you know, a lot, but just, you know, many of the jobs that opened up, uh, there, you know, people came my way to see if I was interested, including the NFL. But, you know, one of my goals that my wife and I had, you know, when we started in the business, I didn't want to be a vagabond. You know, I wanted to take a place like my college coach, Bob Devaney, did it in Nebraska, build it, sustain it, become the athletic director. Um, you know, so I, I felt I could achieve all those goals here. You know, I wanted to raise a family here. I wanted to have a home. I didn't want to just jump around like a lot of the coaches do. So um, it was always flattering when someone came. But when I, we sat back and we'd always go back to the – the goals that we set and that's you know that's the reason we just never went but i never did have an opportunity to go there barry you you were only defensive coordinator at notre dame for two seasons before you became a head coach so i imagine that maybe gives you some insight into knowing when a coordinator is ready to maybe make that transition to become a head coach at, at notre dame a defensive coordinator clark lee from last season moved on to vanderbilt to become a head coach and the current defensive coordinator marcus freeman is likely to be a popular head coaching candidate. I'm curious, like, what do you look for in coaches to sort of identify whether or not they're ready to become a head coach? Well, you know, coordinator, you have to look, when you're going the assistant route to elevate someone, you want to see someone who has had authority and makes decisions. You know, you could be an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator if you're head coaches is making is make actually be being the coordinator and you're not making decisions um that that's not what you're looking for so you need someone who's is making decisions uh someone who uh handles themselves properly someone that makes the right decisions has had success at a high level um manages people well uh, just all those things that 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 you need to be a good head coach uh, it's not just the fact that you have a good defense or a good offense. There's a lot more to it than that, you know, and how they communicate with the public, how they communicate with, you know, the, your alums. Um, do they, you know, do they attract people? Do they have a magnetism and a charisma that, that, that's going to identify with the school. Um, you know, are they a right fit? You know, every place is a little bit different, you know, for, for what type of person they're going to accept. And so all those things come into play. Wisconsin has an awfully good tight end. And uh, he, uh, I, I'm just wondering as his grandpa, do you, you know, as he was growing up, did you guys spend much football time together or it was just spoiling him with ice cream and, and doing grandpa things with him? 
you know, he, he, uh, he played all sports, he and his brother both. And I was fortunate. They moved to Madison. Uh, I think Jake was very, very young. Joe was probably four years old. So I was there when they grew up, and I was back to going to Little League Baseball, junior high basketball, going to all their high school basketball, baseball, and football games. So, you know, I, I was around a bunch. Uh, I, I never missed one of their games when I was in town. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I didn't have to worry about it. Their, their father was a football player at Nebraska. They had a blocking dummy in their, in, in their <laughs> playroom, you know. So those guys were rough and tough. They knew how to block and tackle early. So, but, I, you know, I, I, they'd come to practice. Your dad would bring them to practice. Um, you know, they, they go to every bowl game. They're brought up with bowl games, you know, so, um, they were around it all the time. I was around them. So that was a, that was a lot of fun for me being there when they grew up. Barry, none of or all three of the head coaches who have followed you at Wisconsin have had success. Why, why has Wisconsin been able to maintain that high standard in the big 10? Well, what, what we've established, what I established here was a, was a culture and how we do things, how we go about things, what's accepted, what's not accepted. It's doing things the right way. We don't, we don't cut any corners. We're going to be a physical football team. Uh, our priorities are going to be in-state kids first, a strong walk-on program, uh, you know, given those priorities and, and, uh, and not bending away from that. And I think our basketball program has followed suit in that and a lot of our other people. So, that's kind of the culture that we run within our department and uh, our kids take great pride in it. You know, they're, they're blue collar guys. You know, you don't, we don't have a, you know, they're not what I call cake eaters. These cats get out and compete. Barry, uh, Brian Kelly is on the cusp of a pretty big milestone. He's tied right now with Newt Rockney with most wins in Notre Dame history at one Oh five. I know you have, I think, 119 wins at Wisconsin, which is amazing. But I, I'm I'm curious if you could talk about how difficult those numbers are being at one place that long in this day and age, uh, just the kind of longevity. And just having been at Notre Dame, how difficult maybe it is to get to that number given the pressures of that job. Yeah, I think Notre Dame's really a tough job. You don't have a conference to win. You don't have a division to win. <laughs> to only get to get a championship, you have to win a national championship, and, and that's that's how they're judged, you know. And you, you always go back to the last national championship. So the standards uh, are set very high there, um, and from from the alum and and and, and past history. So it, it's very difficult to keep people happy there, in, in my opinion. As Coach Holtz used to say, I think he used to say about you lose 10% of your of your your fan base every year. Of people that, that support you, you lose 10% a year. So after you've been there for a little while, you don't have many left if, if, his, if his theory is correct. So, um, but I think the most unique thing being an independent is you to win a championship, it's got to be a national championship. And uh, it's very difficult to do. It's uh, so consequently, it's hard to keep all your people happy. So he's, you know, Coach Kelly's done a really nice job there. They've been consistent. Uh, they've been solid. You know, he's built a, he's just built a tremendous program under his tenure. 
Barry, you've mentioned Coach Holtz a number of times now. I'm curious, what, what would you describe as maybe the most important thing you learned from him as a coach? Oh, I, you know, I don't know what's the most important. I just, you know, I, as I said, I had great mentors. Devaney and, and, and Hayden Fry was, was wonderful also. Um, but I, I was a sponge, you know, and I always try to learn. And I, I listened to him. I watched his prep, you know, his, his, uh, some of the things he did and how he prepared a team, uh, you know, how he was demanding. Um, just, just, you know, just a lot of his game philosophy, you know, really jived with me. It's ball control. It's field position. You know, there's, so, you know, his seven areas that you win. You know, those were standards that I used. I brought here, you know, Mel Tucker at Michigan State called me um, beginning of the season. He said, Coach, go review those seven areas with me again. Mm-hmm. Same thing with uh, Chris, Chris Ballard, who's the general manager down at, at Indianapolis. He called me before the season. Coach, send me those seven areas. I want to go for with my coaches, you know. So those are things that I hung my hat on, you know, and just his uh, – you know, how we went about things, how, you know, his, uh, his philosophy really jived with mine. Um, you know, so I, I try to take all those things that, that I learned from him, you know, and, and work it into my, my own personality. He and I are different. I didn't want to be Lou Holtz. I'd be myself, but uh, really, really took a lot of things from him. Before I ask my next question here, I just want to give a tip of the cap to Hayden Fry because um, when I was growing up as an Ohio State football fan and I went there for college, it was the big two and the little eight. And Hayden came in kicking butt and taking names and broke up that monopoly at the top of the standings. And um, I got a chance to you know, cover some games where Hayden was the opposing coach and fascinating guy. So, but my question is actually about the college football playoff. I believe you were on the first selection committee. I, I'm wondering what that was like the first year and how you feel like that process has evolved over time. Yeah, I was on that, on the first committee. I'm really glad that I did it. I'm really glad that I was a part of that. I, you know, everybody wants to know what's going on behind those closed doors. <laughs> uh, I know what went on <laughs> back there. And so, um, you know, I, I, I feel I'm really appreciative of the fact that I was back there. Uh, some wonderful people on that committee, you know, I, you know, if I just, you know, basically everyone spent that week, they put their time in some more, you know, there are some people with more football knowledge than others, but every, every, you know, it seemed like everyone in that room had a little something to offer. Uh, Steve Weiberg is, you know, was, uh, was the writer with, with USA Today and, and he had tremendous value in that room and and he was meticulous and he'd always come up with what the questions were going to be you know as as we went through and he double check after we had our initial top 25 he the next morning we'd come back and to review them and you might have somebody you know i'm worried about one two three four five he's look you know he may he'll look at the whole thing and see where you know maybe number 24 beat 18 mm-hmm. you know and, and and there's going to be questions on this and that and he had tremendous value on there. And so, but everybody spent the week working on it, came up with their, I had my own little formula um, that I, I used to, to help me. 
and then everyone expressed their opinion. And that, that's what I appreciated. Everybody expressed what they, what they felt. Uh, and then, you know, then we voted. And, and you didn't see how anybody else voted. You had, you, you had your computer right there. You, vote, you hit it. You know, then they, you know, they, we, we, they list and, and then we go from there. We discuss it. I thought it was very thorough. Bill Hancock did a nice job of, of managing it. Um, and so, um, it, it was, it was, uh, I'm really glad I did it. It was very interesting. It's it very thorough. What are your thoughts on the proposed 12 team playoff? I like access. I, I think, you know, when we went to a playoff with two instead of, uh, votes, you know, who's number one, I thought that was good. That was a improvement in college football. I thought when we went to the playoff, with four, that was an improvement. I think uh, I think there's something more out there. I'm not crazy about 12. I'm not too sure that eight isn't the answer. Um, you know, I, I, I'm concerned a little about about more games. How many games you're going to play with your student athletes? Yet, I have confidence in coaches. If you're going to have that caliber of team, you're going to adjust practices accordingly. You know, the, the, the other classes, the FCS, they're, they're in the playoff now. Their, their players want to play. Our players want to play. And so, um, but I, I think eight answers our question. It, it, it gives access to everyone in the league. It, uh, it, it gives access to the uh, group of five. Um, and then you still have a couple at largest. And, um, and it doesn't. You know, it's not as much wear and tear, one less game anyhow. So, but uh, I think I think expansion is inevitable. I said that a couple of years ago, and uh, and and I'd be, I you know, I didn't I'd encourage, you know, the, the, the those making that decision, the presidents and the commissioners to take a look at it. But you know, I, I think there was a lot of thought put into twelve. Uh, but personally, I like eight. Last question for me, Barry. You ended up being the athletic director at Wisconsin longer than you were the head coach at Wisconsin. Did you ever imagine that that would be the case? And why, why, why did you choose to sort of do that for so long? Well, the, the, you know, the commissioner or the, or not the commissioner, our, our chancellor came to me when I was coaching. We were in, the, you know, it was right after 9-11. We stopped building, you know, we stopped construction of our suites and, a big addition to our stadium and uh, Pat Richter was retiring. He came to me um, and asked if I would take the AD's job. He said, we're trying to raise money. We need one major gift to continue building and, and fin finish the project. People want to know who the leader will be, who, who, who's the leadership. Uh, and so, you know, I thought about it and that was, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to do. I told him that when I interviewed, you know, that was my long-term goal and to do both, I, you know, we had to come to some agreement. I had a very good deputy and Jamie Pollard, who's done a nice job at Iowa state. Um, and, you know, Jamie could run. I knew I could handle the football and I told him I wouldn't cheat football. Um, Jamie, uh, Jamie could do the day to day. You know, I'd make the major decisions. He and I would stay abreast of everything. I'd meet with our senior staff, uh, couple times a week and, and stay on top of things 
you know, but, but after two years of that, you, you have no break. And so you have to make a decision one way or the other. And uh, that, that's why I did. I, you know, I didn't, I never thought about it, which one I'm going to do longer, you know, you come to the time when you got to retire regardless. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we have for you, Barry. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us this week and uh, enjoy the weekend. Okay. Thanks guys. Looking forward to it. All right. Now it's time for place your bets. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame, Wisconsin. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under 250 passing yards for Jack Cohn. Well, I think this is a game where if Notre Dame is going to win it or even be competitive, they're going to have a lot of passing yards. That's just how it is against Wisconsin. And Penn State game was similar in that, you know, Wisconsin is just hard to run on. And you're going to have to make your living with some big chunk plays and um, throws the tight end. So I'm going to say over. Um, If it's not, Notre Dame is not in this game. Yeah, I'm going over as well. I think Jack will be asked to to throw a lot, and I expect both him and the wide receivers to be sharper than they were last week. Now, now Wisconsin's defense may make it harder to succeed in those efforts, but I, I think that they weren't necessarily at their sharpest and like you mentioned, those those shot plays that they have shown a, a, a want to continue to do, I don't think those are going to go away. They're going to make those opportunities happen, um, and that those can account for for big chunks, even if the, the overall success isn't necessarily there. Next one I have for us is more catches, Michael Mayer or Kevin Austin? Well, it really comes down to how Wisconsin wants to play that because one opens up the other, and so – I'm, I'm guessing that Wisconsin is going to start with trying to, even though they had a lot of drops last week, limit Notre Dame's wide receivers. And I think Michael Mayer is just going to, and, and I think Tommy Reese is going to dial some new things up for Michael to get him the ball. So I think Michael Mayer is going to get more catches. Now, Wisconsin can certainly change during the game, uh, but, but I'm going to put my bet on Michael. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see how Wisconsin plays it because, I I mean, I, I almost think that Wisconsin should try to limit Mayer because the throws to him are typically easier and then make Jack Cohn and the wide receivers beat you. Um, and then you also have the opportunity to potentially put pressure on Jack Cohn because those throws may be harder to, to get to. Um, but I, I, I just so, – so I was leaning Austin, but I couldn't quite get myself there just because I think – Notre Dame will find a way to get get Michael Mayer the ball, and uh, because I I don't think that they can have a winning formula without him having more involvement than he was last last week. I right. think I think they could still have success in the passing game without Kevin Austin if if other other wide receivers have big games, but I'm not sure that they could do that without Michael Mayer. Next one we have is over under 225 rushing yards for Wisconsin. If they're over, Notre Dame is in big trouble. Um, so I'm going to say under. And I think I think from what I saw of Notre Dame's defensive evolution last week, that's reasonable. I, I think uh, Ches Malusi and the, the other guys are good backs. They're not in the caliber of what Wisconsin is used to having. Um, so if they get over 200 yards – 
you know, something went terribly wrong with the defense. So I'm, I'm going under. Yeah, I'm going under as well. I think Notre Dame is going to commit as many resources as it can to stopping the run and making Graham Mertz have to beat the defense. Um, so I, I think that they will hold them under. I don't think it'll be an easy task. I am encouraged by what the defense did last week, but um, this is a different, different beast, certainly. And even, I mean, even what Florida State was able to do on the ground isn't necessarily anything that's too similar to what Wisconsin's going to try to do. And, and what Florida State gave gained a lot of those yards because Notre Dame was sort of ceding them to them, and then Notre Dame's not going to do that against Wisconsin. Next one, will Notre Dame's defense intercept a Graham Mertz pass? I would say yes. He's had a – since the Illinois opener in 2020, and, and granted he had some COVID issues and so forth, but he's – he's got an interception to touchdown ratio. That's wrong. That's higher with interceptions. Right. And I think that's, I think Notre Dame has been really good about pressuring the quarterbacks into those interceptions. Really Kyle Hamilton should have four. Um, that, that reverse call was really, really close. Um, so, and I think there are other people capable of it. I just think the pressure has come. And now again, some of it is, how soon does Jordan Botello turn into the guy we saw in August? He played special teams on um, Saturday against Purdue, and they're going to gradually introduce him more into that mix. That gives you another really good edge guy. Yeah, we, we have a lot of agreement here today, so I'm interested to see if we look like wise guys or idiots uh, <laughs> after Saturday because uh, I agree with you. I think I think Graham Burst will throw an interception. Um, Kyle Hamilton is still in Notre Dame second secondary so that's that's certainly enough of a reason to uh for me to say yes lastly in terms of our props over under 11 tackles for jd bertrand i think he's gonna be right around there i'll go over because i just don't think prince collie is ready to spell him yet and i think the way that wisconsin plays there's going to be a lot of a lot of action in JD's alley, and and I think he's going to get right around twelve or thirteen again. And and the fact that Wisconsin runs a lot of offensive plays that they hog the ball, those tackle numbers will go up for all the Notre Dame guys if if Wisconsin is able to do that. Yeah, well, so we'll stick to agreeing. I, I, he's had twelve twice now, um, so it's not unreasonable for him to get get to that number again. Notre Dame certainly wants to cut down on his workload, as Brian Kelly mentioned um, on Monday. But like you said, I, I don't think that they're they're ready to trust Prince Kelly quite yet in, in a serious way um, against this this Wisconsin offense. I, I'm, I They may get him out there some a little bit just to give him a little bit of J.D. Bertrand, a little bit of a breather. But I can't imagine it, it being a lot, especially if the game is close. And lastly, let's see if we have the exact same final score prediction. What do you have, Eric, for Saturday's game? I don't think we will because I think I went with a silly pick. Um, I, I ended up picking Notre Dame to win 20 to 19, and I'll tell you why. I, you know, I remember this is a very – this game is going to be very, right out of the 2012 playbook. I remember both the Michigan State game and Oklahoma games that year, top 10 teams Notre Dame beat on the road. Um it was about big chunk plays, um, better, you know, which opened up their running game a little bit more than it had been in those games. 
I think you need a pick six or some kind of defensive or special teams touchdown. And that's kind of what I envision. I envision Wisconsin scoring a bunch of field goals and one touchdown. Um, and, uh, Notre Dame's defense has got to carry it in this game. And so I am i would not go run to your um, favorite bookie and say, hey, Eric Hansen said this, I want to put this down. <laughs> I do not recommend this bet. Um, so, but I'm going to say 2019 Notre Dame. Well, we both not a lot of confidence. We, yeah, we both have a one point margin. I have it in Wisconsin's favor with Wisconsin 24, Notre Dame 23. We are entering a stretch of the season here where I can probably reasonably predict Notre Dame to lose many games over the next six weeks. Um, I certainly don't think they'll lose all of them. Um, I'm not convinced that this is a vintage Wisconsin team. Um, but I think this is the week that the o- offensive line struggles are, are going to be just a little bit too much to overcome. Notre Dame's offense isn't going to be able to score enough. Um, even though I do, do think Notre Dame's defense will play pretty well, I just think that the three and, up, three and outs will, will really hurt um, Wisconsin sort of controlling the football when they have it, um, will limit Notre Dame's offensive opportunities. Um, so I think Wisconsin – We'll be able to pull this one out, but I, I, I'm in agreement with you. I, I have very little confidence in how this game is actually going to play out. I, I, I think uh, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure how to read either team. I, 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 I don't love this Notre Dame team clearly, um, but I, I'm, I'm not in love with this Wisconsin team either. So I'm, I'm not sure if. Um, and it's platonic love. <laughs> if Wisconsin can make make them pay for make Notre Dame pay for its deficiencies. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First question we have is from Michael Kelly at Michael Bunch of Numbers. Quinn Carroll, Andrew Kristoffic, and Dirksen John, – John Dirksen are all four-star upperclassmen offensive linemen with size – what happened to their development? Zeke Carell looks way undersized, and Caden Madden looks lost athletically. Okay, so let's start with the three guys that he asked about first. Quinn Carroll was a top 100 recruit. I think Quinn's development was really seems to be affected by a knee injury he suffered in fall camp as a true freshman. He's been moved inside. I know when... In that August camp, Brian Kelly was very high on him as being a future really good tackle. So I wonder if he's physically compromised. Um, Two, with Kristoffic, you know, Andrew definitely had – he was a top 250 kind of player or at least a four-star player. Very athletic, worked a lot at left tackle. I'm not writing him off. I think he's a valuable guy. Uh, can play center, can play guard, can play tackle, I guess, in a pinch. But I don't think he's one of their better tackles. I don't think anything's wrong with his development. I just think there's other guys that are ahead of him. And then John Dirksen was a three-star guy, and um, I think he's developed probably better than what his high school you know, recruiting hype gave him, but not good enough to overtake the guys that are ahead of him. Um, yeah. So oh, go ahead. Uh, what was the other part of the question? It, there was, it was just a comment about Zeke Carell. Okay. okay. I'll just there was, it let it go. Side. It's on to you. <laughs> um, yeah. John Dirksen 
he is not in the same category as Quinn Carroll and Andrew Stoffick as a three-star recruit. He was always sort of a project. He was a big kid from a small school that was always going to need to evolve his, his technique. Um, and uh, that never seemed to materialize. I, I think John, John Dirksen was a part of a, a stretch in which Harry Heastan took some questionable three-star commits that he didn't get to see them through. So maybe he would have, maybe, maybe he would have been to develop them or maybe he wouldn't. Um, that includes Dirksen and Cole Mabry in the 2018 class. And Cole ended up uh, retiring due to injuries, but I was not a huge fan of him as a recruit. And, and, and Dylan Gibbons was also a three-star commit in the 2017 class. And, and, and Harry had his own, Harry Heastan had his own four-star commits that didn't pan out. John Montalus, Hunter Biven, Jimmy Byrne, Tristan Hodge. There, were, there, were, there have been four-star flameouts. Um, under Harry Heastan, but obviously he had a lot of successes too that made up for that. You're going to have guys that aren't going to always pan out, even though they were four star uh, recruits. Um, it's it's a little bit it's more glaring this year because they're just the the guys that are playing instead of them aren't being as success aren't as successful, um, and that's tough. I, I I I point to the same thing with Quinn Carroll as you did. His, his ACL injury seems to have sort of derailed his career. Um, certainly, guys come back from that across college football. Um, but for whatever reason, he didn't seem to do that. Is that an excuse? I, I don't know, but it's certainly something that can't be ignored. The Christophic one of the three is the most surprising to me. One, and that he be, he's become an interior player. He seemed like someone that should definitely be an offensive tackle based on his sort of build and athleticism. Um, and he didn't stick out there. Um, he also wasn't good enough to, to beat out Z Carell or prevent Notre Dame from wanting to take Kane Madden as a guard. So that one's a little bit perplexing to me. Maybe, maybe sort of the transition from tackle to guard has, has slowed his development um, and not allowed him to be as good of a guard as he could eventually become. And they they are experimenting with getting him into the lineup and maybe there still is something left in his future. I, I'm not ready to sort of rule him out um, for the long term yet. Um, but he's the one that I think is the, maybe the most concerning and intriguing in, in, in my, in my opinion. Uh, next question we have is from Joe Esquire at sad Irish fan 13. What did you guys think of the play of Joe Alt and Andrew Christoffic? Will we see them against Wisconsin? Um, Christoffic and Alt each played eight snaps, I believe through pro football focus counts those up. Um, I surprised that Alt was only eight because I noticed him in the game a lot more. Um, Christophic, I noticed him when he went in, and then I didn't really watch him closely. I know Brian Kelly complimented him either after the game or on Monday, but he also complimented some people that I didn't think necessarily played well in that game. Um, so um, I don't have a great great feel for it, but but the fact that they're still talking about Christophic rotating in, he must have played well enough. All I was fascinated by that whole thing, and I know Kyron Williams was too. Kyron um, said it kind of reminded him of the way Tommy Tremble blocks. Um, he's got a tight end background. He moves really well for a big, big guy. Um, I like that heavy package, um, and I want to see more of Joe Hall. Yeah, I, I went back and made sure to – I tried to watch all the snaps for both these guys to, to make sure I had a, a, a good grasp of what they did. Um, Andrew Christophics came consecutively in the middle of the first quarter and into the second quarter. 
Um, Joe Walsh were more sporadic throughout the game. Um, Christophic, I thought he looked pretty good, and then he got beat on the to the play side. He was on the left and runs to the right on a third and two, and Chris Tyree got stuffed by his guy. Um, and then he stayed in for the fourth and three, um, which was the touchdown pass to Kyron Williams. Um, but then he didn't return to the game after that. So I'm curious if that sort of missed assignment on the third down sort of ended up with him on the bench or or um, they just liked what Zeke did when they brought him back into the game. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they thought about that, but I thought he, he, he showed that he was okay. He didn't do anything to sort of overwhelm me or anything like that. Whereas Joel, I thought he looked like a butt kicker run blocking from the get-go. His first, his first rep was just like, wow, that, that looked really good. I'm pretty sure he it was, he was one-on-one with George Karloftis a couple of times, um, which is certainly a, a not an easy task. Um, I really like his size, his, his technique and intensity. Um, I expect we'll see both of them against Wisconsin. I'm curious to see sort of how much they use that extra tackle tight end package. I, I consider him more of an extra tackle than an extra tight, another tight end, although they give him a tight end eligible number because they line him up at tight end and he could, in theory, be thrown a, a pass to. I'm not sure that that's necessarily in the cards. I also don't think – I don't see them using him in similar ways that they use Tommy Tremble, where he's an H-back lined up off the line of scrimmage and coming across the field um, as much, although I think he's athletic enough too, but it, his height I think would, would make that more difficult um, because you have to stay really low to do something like that, especially like playing like a fullback role where Tommy Tremble did at times last year. Um, I, I asked Brian Hill about that specifically, and he said J.D. Bertrand is kind of the guy they like for that. But J.D. Bertrand is pretty busy on defense right now, so I don't know um, how much or if they will, they will ask J.D. Bertrand to do that moving right. forward. Joe Ald is 6'8", for those that don't know. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, next question we have is from Case at Irish Case 5 Is the offensive line a result of recruiting misses and bad takes or development? I feel Notre Dame should never really be in this position. I understand a drop-off from last year, but not a nosedive off a cliff. Well, I would agree with his assessment to a certain extent that Notre Dame should never be in this position. And yet, I'm not sure that the position is exactly what um, he thinks it is. And, And Tyler and I talked about this a little bit Uh, off the podcast last night because I did some math. And when you take out Jack Cohn's rushing, which is all negative, Notre Dame is averaging 4.6 yards per rush. They averaged five last year. Now, I'm not adding any in books, which I think would make it comparable. Uh, I think the combination of a rebuilding offensive line and Jack Cohn's lack of mobility is where we really have the issue. I think they're both issues. So if you had, let's say, a sophomore Tyler Buckner or Tyler Buckner to play three years of high school as a starting quarterback, we may not be talking about the offensive line, you know, bottoming out as much. I'm not saying that they're playing great. I'm just saying it's not maybe as bad as you think. Now, I'm going to kind of go long in this answer, Tyler, if that's okay. No, that's fine. I, I, I had lots of thoughts here too. Okay. So I went back and looked at the recruiting classes and said, where did they miss out? And the 2017 class was Banks, Hainsey, Gib, Gibbons, and Lug. So Banks is a pro. Hainsey's a pro. Um, they wanted to bring Aaron Banks back. Had they done that for a fifth year, I think they would have been certainly a better line. 
Gibbons, um, I don't think, I mean, if he couldn't start on this line, he's not going to improve it. Lug, I think, has been disappointing so far. I think the next class is where they really kind of get into trouble, the, the academic seniors. You have Patterson, who plays way above his three-star ranking. And then you had Luke Jones, who transferred and isn't tearing up at Arkansas. You have Dirksen and Mabry. That wasn't a good recruiting class. That was Harry's last Harry's last, and Jeff Quinn's first. Jeff Quinn got Luke Jones and Patterson, and Harry got um, Dirksen and Cole Mabry. That was kind of a lost class there. That's where you're that's where you're counting on those guys being pretty good players at this point in their career. Yeah. And you have one starter out of those. And I, Luke Jones, no way, is starting on this team. Uh, the next class was Zeke Carell, Quinn Carroll, Christophic, Olmstead. And then you had Hunter Spears, who was a defensive lineman, likes cookie cakes. He converted and, and was just never healthy enough to play. But the big miss there was Olmstead. Um, there were other guys that they could have recruited in that class. Olmstead had to drop down to FCS level. He is playing at Lafayette, but he just wasn't a good fit. Then you, then you have Quinn Carroll that turned out to be a miss because of health. So you have Christophic and Zeke Carell that are playing. And you really get down into the 2020 and 2021 class, and you find your best linemen in those classes. I think Carmody, Baker, Spindler, Fisher, Alt are five of the six best linemen on this team from a pure talent standpoint. You also have Coogan and Caleb Johnson in the freshman class. I don't think they're in that caliber. But you're so you're very bottom heavy in your best talented players. Um, and a lot of those guys are playing right now, and it's not a recipe for success. So should Notre Dame have never gotten that position? Absolutely. I think that 2018 class is where things went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, uh, you, you covered a lot of the, the things that I, I sort of agree with, and I, I had done some of the research as well. I, I think, I mean, as is the case in most of these scenarios, it's a combination of everything. Uh, there were some recruiting misses and some bad takes and some guys that haven't developed as you would think they would develop. Now, some t- I, sometimes it's the coach's fault. Sometimes it's the player's fault. Sometimes it's a com- combination of both as well. Um, the bottom line is they, they should not be as bad as they are. And that's sort of, I would, I, I guess you could say it's inexcusable. I mean, they, they have to get better. They're, they're being demanded to be better. Um, I think what you mentioned about the 2020 and 2021 classes is really important because I think that's sort of the future of, of this offensive line. Now it's not necessarily resulting in what you would like it to this year. Um, There are holes that 2018 class is something that they have not been able to overcome. Um, And that's a, that's a shared blame in my opinion, between Harry, he and, and Jeff Quinn. Now maybe if Harry, he stands here, he makes those guys, those guys like Cole Mabry and John Dirksen, like I mentioned previously, maybe he turns them into something and Jeff Quinn didn't quite jive with those guys and wasn't able to get that out of them. I, 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 I don't think anyone could say for certain what, how that would turn out. Um, but um, I think that like, like you mentioned, those guys that they've brought in are, are good for the future. Now um, that doesn't necessarily matter for what's, what's, what's happening right now. So it, it's, it's a really a combination of all those things. Um, but the bottom line is, is Jeff Quinn needed to do a better job preparing this this line. And I also think this, and maybe maybe the most troubling thing in my opinion is that 
Notre Dame seemed to have way more confidence in this offensive line based off of its scheme and what it wanted to do and what it decided it was going to do this season, thinking that its offensive line was way better than it is. And I think that has set them up for some failures early on in the season. Um, I think they're sort of adjusting to that now um, and and trying to figure out how to work this offense around an offensive line being its weakness. Um, And there, I think there can be success in, in that the sort of, altered blueprint for that. Um, and I'm curious to see what sort of improvement that leads to throughout the season. I, 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 if we, if we were able to ask them, honestly, did they think the offensive line would be this bad? I, I can't, I don't think that they would say that. And I, my question would be, my question would be, well, why not? Why did you think that this line was going to be so much better than it is? And how, how did that sort of happen? Next question we have is from Donatello and, uh, we still have a couple more offensive line questions. Uh, how, how likely Donatello at sports talk down, how likely is it that Brian Kelly will get rid of Jeff Quinn after the line cost Notre Dame the rest of the season? Well, we don't know that the line is going to um, cost Notre Dame the rest of the season. So the best way I can answer it is this. So I did, I made a call to somebody um, with a coaching background who um, I respect and, knows Jeff Quinn's work. And I said, you know, what do you, what do you think about Jeff Quinn as an offensive line coach? And he said, I think he's a really not very good head coach and a really good offensive line coach. Jeff Quinn was the head coach at Buffalo for a few years before uh, coming back to Notre Dame as an analyst. And that's what I really needed to get to because the situations don't always illuminate how good or not a coach is. And I think that I, I hate to, I hate to be this broad in this comment, but I think sometimes when people don't get the hire they want, they can't wait for this person to not have a good stretch. And I don't know that they ever see them clearly. I didn't have a dog in the fight with when getting the uh, offensive line coach job. So I don't, you know, I don't have this need to be right about that he wasn't the right pick to succeed Harry Heastan. And I think not a lot of people could have walked into that position and followed Harry and made anybody happy. Um, so, you know, I just try to go by people that are much more nuanced in their um, knowledge of both Jeff Quinn and the offensive line and so that's my answer. I don't think he's going to get fired because I don't think Brian Kelly thinks he's a subpar offensive line coach and right. he recruits his butt off. Yeah. And, and that's what it comes down to. I, I think and I want, I want to, I want to say, uh, uh, read a quote that Brian Kelly gave us uh, yesterday when I, I don't remember if you specifically asked about whether or not Tosh Baker could, could yeah, for my harmony. Uh, he didn't necessarily answer that specifically. And he just talked about the offensive tackles in general. And he said, uh, we're very blessed that we have four young players that can play at a high level. Um, Speaking about Tosh Baker, Michael Carmody, Blake Fisher, and Joe Alt. Each one of them is at a different stage in that development. But I got to tell you, standing right here in front of you, they're not all ready. But when they are, we're going to be back to talking about, man, that Notre Dame line, man, they're as good as anybody in the country. And that's going to happen. So if if Brian Kelly is that high on those guys, um, it comes down to does he believe that Jeff Quinn has a chance to see to help those guys reach their potential? Um, I I would tend to think that he does believe that, 
Um, but maybe the last this offseason and this season have created doubt in his mind. I'm not sure how Brian Kelly thinks in that. I don't know that he would necessarily tell us that in any sort of way until he, he made a decision one way or the other. But if he believes that Jeff, if he believes that Jeff Quinn deserves the credit um, for how the previous lines have played, um, then he has, then he has reason to ha- have confidence in him. If he's discouraged by the season and thinks that um, Jeff Quinn was sort of dealt a, a good hand and sort of, the success of the previous offensive lines weren't due to his work. Um, then maybe, then, then maybe you move on from, from, from Jeff Quinn. Um, I think this, I mean, this is a, I know people want to like Brian Kelly would never fire his buddies. And certainly that's already happened during his Notre Dame career. Yeah, it has. And, and, and people sort of, sort of hold that against him and believe that he, he's sort of made bad hires because of who he likes and stuff like that. But I think what, what's important that, at this time in Brian Kelly's career, more than anything, is the window for him to win a national championship is shrinking. Like he's not going to be here for another for another decade. Um, so these linemen, specifically those four linemen he's talking about, they are going to play a giant role in whether or not he's able to win a national championship during his career. And obviously, there's has to be a lot that goes into that together. So if he if he if he has any questions about whether or not Jeff Quinn can make that happen, then he has plenty of reason to make that move. So I, I think. I think we have to now we can disagree on whether or not he's making the right decision, but I don't, I don't think it's fair for, for us to believe that Brian Kelly would make this decision because he's known Jeff Quinn for a long time. And that's the only reason he wouldn't, he wouldn't move on from him. All right. One more offensive line question from at right in 41 by all reports over the last three weeks, Kane Madden is seemingly the worst offensive lineman to start in over a decade. Uh, why is he still starting? Rocco Spindler can be at the very least move defensive lineman off the ball, possibly making up for a missed assignment. Why is Kane getting such a look and how much more rope does he get? Well, I think he's starting because Notre Dame saw on film from Marshall, something that they really liked. And I know that pro football focus graded Kane Madden as one of the top interior lineman in the country last year. So that's kind of an independent grading. I, I I tried to watch him a few plays here and there in the Purdue game, because again, I have to watch everything. I can't just watch Kane. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's fair to say that he's the worst, but then when you think about how good Notre Dame's offensive lineman is, Somebody really good is going to turn out to be the worst offensive line to start in the last 10 years. I mean, think about that. I mean, how many duds have they had on their offensive line? Right. Uh, at least guys that were starters and not fill-ins. And so I'm willing to give it more time with Kane Madden just to see what that can turn into. They had all summer and all fall camp to deem whether he was the best I mean, they don't owe him anything. If he turned out to be less than expected, they could plug somebody else in there, including Rocco. So, you know, I mean, they, they don't owe him anything. It's not like he can come back next year. It's yeah. not like the offensive line will lose their NIL deals with uh, dude wipes <laughs> and mission barbecue if he's not on the line. So uh, let I'm, I'm willing to be patient with it, but I, I can understand the concerns. I mean, there were times I looked at that right side of the line in the game Saturday against Purdue and went, wow, I did expect more than this. Yeah. I, 
we certainly can't say all reports because we aren't reporting that he's the worst <laughs> decade. Uh, uh, I would need a lot more time to sort of evaluate every offensive lineman uh, throughout their, their time here. He certainly hasn't played well. That, that's, we can agree on that. Um, why is he still starting? Because I think that Notre Dame believes he's better than what he's played. Um, and they're going to give him time to figure things out because they were higher on him. As for Rocco Spindler, I think it's important to mention that they have chosen Andrew Christoffic to go in as the first guard off the bench ahead of Rocco Spindler. Now, that doesn't mean they don't like Rocco Spindler, but they like Andrew Christoffic better than him. So if, if there's another level between Andrew Christoffic and, and Rocco Spindler, that would explain why they haven't necessarily pulled the, pulled the trigger on that. And if they do think they need to pull Cam Madden out, you would think that they would give Andrew Christoffic some work at right guard as well, unless they really feel it's too hard for him to, to, to sort of train both left and right. Um, so I, I think it will be a combination of, it would require a combination of Christoffic playing well in his snaps and, and Madden continuing to play poorly. That would lead to a change. I think a permanent change would probably still be a couple of weeks away, but I mean, if, if Cade Madden's getting his butt whooped in the middle of the game, on Saturday, I think Notre Dame has to be prepared to, to do something else about that because they cannot um, they cannot keep leaving them self-exposed with the right side of the offensive line. It's not performing anywhere near the level it needs to be. Next question is from Michael Kinney at Domer747. With opposing teams likely to continue to focus on taking Michael Mayer away and with Notre Dame running more multiple tight end sets, Talk about the other tight ends beyond Mayer and if you expect to see them become threats in the passing game. Well, um, George Takis is the number two tight end, and he played quite a bit on Saturday, but more as an extra blocker, uh, extra protection. Um, uh, Notre Dame has lost Kevin Bauman for the season, and so then they have two true freshmen, Kane Barong and Mitchell Evans. Both those guys were quarterbacks at some point in their careers, high school careers. Mitchell more recently than Kane. Um, I love Mitchell Evans' potential. I, I think he's really athletic. He's six 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 seven, kid that can run pretty well. I just don't think he's quite ready to contribute consistently. Yeah, he, he was playing. He was playing quarterback last year in high school. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's what I said. That that he more recently was a quarterback. Right. But I mean, I'm impressed with what we saw of him in the spring in the blue gold game, and also what we saw in August. And, and Kane was good in um, red zone stuff. Um, and and Kane was a quarterback maybe as recently as his sophomore year in high school. Uh, so I I like those guys, but again. If you're going to get on the field right now, you got to be able to block first. Uh, so I, I don't think they're, you know, they're okay. They're taking away Michael Mayer. Let's throw a bunch of passes to George Takis. I don't think that's how it's going to work. No. Um, so the outside receivers are going to have to help. They're going to have to make people pay for paying a lot of attention to Michael Mayer. And last week there was a lot of drops. They had a bad day at the office other than, you know, Avery Davis, who's a slot receiver, but the outside receivers just had a collective bad, bad day. Yeah. George Takis is capable, but he's not a standout in any way. In my opinion, I think his, if he, if he hits his ceiling, it's somewhere near like Ben Koyak. He's not like George, George Takis isn't 
once Michael Mayer leaves, he's going to become the next great tight end or become the next great tight end. Oh, he's going to leave before Michael Mayer does. He's going to run out of eligibility. <laughs> um, so, well, I, I, that might not be true because I don't think Mike Mayer's here after three years and Takis could come back for a fifth. But um, I think uh, I think that Kevin Bauman was the one who could have made an impact, but his broken leg prevented that from happening. Um, Mitchell Evans and Cain Brong are works in progress. I don't see them playing huge receiving roles this season. And like you mentioned, I, I don't know that their blocking is up to snuff either. And I'm not sure that, quite frankly, George Takis' blocking is is at the level that it needs to be. I, I, I think that may have some – that may be some of the reason why Joe Walt as an extra tight end slash tackle is, is, a, is a scenario for Notre Dame because they just don't have enough of the tight ends that they can do those kinds of things with. Um, but, but like you said, I, the, the, the attention to Michael Mayer isn't, isn't going to, to lead to a second tight end breaking out. It's going to lead to more, more possibilities for the, the wide receivers because the safeties that are, being, that are being occupied by Michael Mayer cannot cover the wide receivers that can go down the field or help out their uh, cornerbacks as much as they would like to in normal circumstances. So that is where the, the, the benefit will end up at the wide receiver position rather than a second tight end. Next question or set of questions from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. With the exception of Avery Davis, the receivers were poor. They have trouble beating the press. Is this a coaching slash technique issue? Do you think the vertical game is being used too much? Do you think Notre Dame should spread the field more? And then lastly, Eric, can you reveal the top 15 on your ballot? Okay. I think what happened against Purdue was an anomaly. Again, I think it was a bad day at the office. I don't think they're using the deep passes too much. I think it's one of the things that helps solve, you know, the running problem. I think it opens up the running game. Should Notre Dame spread out more? I think they'd love to, but they can't because they need to have tighter formations due to the pass protection issues. Um, And then my top 15, and you can, um, if you go to the AP site, for the poll, you can look at every voter's top 25. Strangely, they left my number 15 off um, <laughs> of mine, but quickly it was um, one Alabama, two Georgia, three Oklahoma, four Oregon, five Cincinnati, six Iowa, seven Penn State, eight Ohio State, nine Clemson, 10 Texas A&M, 11 Notre Dame, 12 Florida, 13 Arkansas, 14 Wisconsin, and 15 old Miss, and I am proud to have Fresno as number 18. I stayed up to the end of that game, and I could not do my top 25 until it finished because Fresno and UCLA were scoring back and forth in like that last minute. Yeah. And so it looked like one or the other was going to win a couple different times. I do not have a top 15. Um, who, who did you make, based on your emails, who have you made the angriest this week? Was there any outrage this week from fan bases? <laughs> there was not outrage this week. <laughs> All right. Outrage. I think Coastal Carolina would probably be the team that would have the biggest beef because I don't have them ranked. But I think people are ranking them based on who they were last year. Yeah. They haven't been. I mean, you beat Kansas by 20 points or whatever. Everybody beats Kansas by 20 points. I mean, you if you're going to be ranked in the top 25, you've, you've got to be – you've got to raise yourself to that standard. And Cincinnati has, they, you know, 
They beat a Big Ten team on the road last week by two right. touchdowns. So, you know, they're they're earning their things. You don't give them a lower bar just because they're, you know, not a power five team. To the wide receiver questions that Murray asked, um, do do they have trouble beating the press? I that was not something that I have had as a takeaway. I would need to focus more on the wide receivers to determine that. Um, I, I don't know that that's something that I would have, have guessed. I don't I don't think the vertical game is being used too much. The the reward is worth it, in my opinion. I do think there need to be more easy throws to the wide receivers. Um, the easy throws tend to be to, to Michael Mayer and the running backs. I'd like to see some more crossing routes um, to the wide receivers, get the ball in, in Kevin Austin, Braden Lindsey, and Avery Davis's hands and let them get some yards after the catch. Maybe that gets their confidence up. Maybe that gets them on the same page better with Jack Cohen a little bit. Um, but, yeah, last week was not what, not the effort that they need from the wide receivers. They can't have those those drops. Jack Cohn, I think, is the kind of guy that's still going to trust them. He's not going to go away from them. He won't let that impact him too much. Um, and Jack needs to be better, too. He, he had a number of throws that he, he didn't necessarily give the wide receivers a chance on. Um, and uh, like I mentioned earlier in the, in, in the podcast on our prop bets, I expect both Jack and – the wide receivers to be sharper than they were last weekend. Next question is from at clutch sports ND. How much should Tyler Buckner factor into the game plan against Wisconsin? Will there, or should there be actual pass plays for him this week instead of RPO type plays? I think they'll factor him in as much as his hamstring will let them. He had a tight hamstring in the Purdue game that limited him to fewer than 10 snaps in that game. And I asked Brian Kelly about him on Monday and they're going to be very aggressive with the treatment. They think he's going to play Saturday, but you know how hamstrings are. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to predict how quickly they come back, but uh, I don't think Notre Dame can win without Tyler Buckner. If Tyler Buckner doesn't play in this game, I don't think I'm changing my score prediction uh, because I don't think Notre Dame has a chance. The quarterback runs are so important against teams like Wisconsin Otherwise, they're just built to uh, overload the box. They're built to kind of play in that phone booth, you know, and, and if you have tight formation, you're kind of playing into their hands. Uh, so I think Tyler Buckner, now as far as just calling a pass play and not doing the RPOs, I, I, I suppose there's occasions for that, but the RPOs are kind of what makes Tyler Buckner, Tyler Buckner, um, so I, I think that would be – I would not try to shy away from those too much. Yeah, yeah. Notre Dame needs him as long as he's healthy. I expect him to be in there at, at times. I, I think they stick with the RPO plays. If you're bringing him in, the defense is going to try to stop him from running, and that's – the RPO allows him to take advantage of, of the defense doing that. Um, you can mix in a drop back, a normal drop back every once in a while, but I don't see that – I don't think Notre Dame will do that much. That, that would require him to make more progressions in his reads, whereas with the run, the RPO, he does have to make reads and decisions, but a lot of those are pre-snap, um, at least in terms of whether or not he thinks this should be a run or a pass, um, and they're going to be quick decisions if they're not pre-snap. They're going to be sort of on the snap of the ball. He's going to decide, okay, is this is this safety taking up the space where that wide receiver is going to be at, or am I just going to give the ball here, and or am I going to keep it? Um, he's making a lot of decisions, so I think, I think he's probably – the progression of the offense for him is probably him getting to his best in those RPO situations and then sort of expanding the office beyond that. And I'm not sure that he's at that point yet, especially if he's dealing with a hamstring issue. Um, and maybe so, some of those things can't be developed as well if he's limited in practice and stuff. 
Um, so, but I, I think the RPOs are what make him um, and the running all that count combined makes him the difference maker for the offense when he's in the game. So that's why they will continue to do that. Next question is from Wayne Ustroff at W Ustroff. Eric, a couple of years ago, you said that Notre Dame will be setting themselves up for a good chance at a 2022 national championship run because the way recruiting was going. Do you still feel that way and why? Also, what more does Kyle Hamilton need to do to get into the Heisman conversation? Let me start with the Kyle Hamilton part of it. What one of probably both these things would need to happen. One is Kyle Hamilton would have to score an offensive touchdown. You know, the, the people love the defensive players, but they love them more when they do something crazy or they do something on special teams. And that kind of would set him apart, even though he's a brilliant defensive player. The other thing is Notre Dame's defense would have to get really good. Um, and you, as, as brilliant as Kyle Hamilton is, if he's not leading Notre Dame into the playoff or into the playoff discussion, if Notre Dame's defense isn't a top 25 defense, Kyle Hamilton isn't going to get recognition. You know, one of the reasons Manti got the recognition that he did is because Notre Dame's defense was in the top two all season. So uh, Kyle Hamilton, that that's kind of where it would have to go with the Heisman thing. In terms of whether they would be really good in 2022, I think – as long as Tyler Buckner turns into the Tyler Buckner, they thought he was going to be, and, and there are all indications that he's on that trajectory, um, turns into that guy in 2022 and that he's the starting quarterback. I really think he's got the surrounding cast to go around him. Uh, I think Kyron Williams probably leaves after this year, but you would still have Chris Tyree and some other pretty good running backs. You would have a pretty good wide receiver core, even if, most of those senior receivers moved on, you would still have a really good core of young players with Deion Colsey, Lorenzo Styles, some of the guys in this current recruiting class, Tobias Merriweather and C.J. Williams. Uh, so I think the wide receiver, they'd be great. Um, you would have Michael Mayer back at tight end and a healthy Kevin Bauman and, and some good young tight ends. The offensive line, presumably would be better. It would certainly be enhanced if Jarrett Patterson came back for a fifth year. But if he didn't, I still think you would have a lot of talent on the offensive line. You flip it over to the defense, a lot of defensive line talent. Linebackers, you're bringing in four super freshmen. You're going to have a more mature Prince Collie. You're going to get Marist, Leofau, and Shane Simon back. You're only losing for sure Drew White and possibly – uh, Bo Bauer, uh, but there's still a lot of talent there. Cornerbacks, lots of number numbers, and I think you'll have quality there. The, the black hole is safety. You need to um, have some answers at safety to, to make this thing go, and if you can find those, then I think this is a team capable of being in that championship discussion. All right, yeah, I um... – in terms of Kyle Hamilton in the Heisman conversation, I think it's 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 really hard for a, a a defender to get into that conversation. I think he has the type of plays that like get people's attention. Um, so if he continues to have a lot of those wow moments in the next few games, um, a lot of tackles and some interceptions, um, 
And Notre Dame, I think, would have to go undefeated through its sort of six-week stretch coming up here. Um, then maybe that gets him in the conversation. But um, it's really sort of a, a not an easy thing. And certainly Manti Teo was able to do that partially based on the success the team was having. And he was sort of the symbol of that team. And, and maybe Kyle Hamilton could become that. But um, that's a, a tall task. Next question we have is an email from Charles W. Wolf. Two questions I wasn't expecting to ask a quarter of the way into the new season. Has Kyron Williams' draft stock been affected by the inconsistent offensive play? And is J.D. Bertrand a legitimate All-American candidate? I haven't talked to any of the draft analysts, but just based on what I know that they're looking for, I think Kyron's probably helped himself. Um, he's 20th in the country in all-purpose yardage. His ability to catch passes, turn those into big plays, that's what the NFL guys are looking for. And just his tough running, the, the long run he had in the Purdue game where he broke a bunch of tackles, where it looked like maybe it was going to be a six-yard run, and then all of a sudden he was down the field in the end zone. You know, with, the, with not necessarily getting good blocking, having to get so many of his yards after contact, I think he's done really well. J.D. Bertrand, he's an All-American person. Uh, but I don't think he's an All-America caliber player. He's got big numbers with tackles because he's playing a lot of snaps. But I don't think he impacts the game the way Jeremiah Wusukoromoa did, who was an All-American, in being able to make these game-changing plays. Uh, and, and his coverage ability was great. So I'm not downgrading what uh, JD is doing. I just don't – knowing who the other linebackers are that will be up for this – I don't think he's playing at that level. I, I think for, on the JD front, I think he'll be in that conversation if he keeps putting up the ridiculous stats that he is. Um, because if you're a Notre Dame linebacker and you're putting up 12 tackles per game, I think you're going to be in that conversation whether or not you have to be better as a team on defense too. Sure. But whether or not you're making the, the spectacular plays, a lot of people that aren't necessarily watching Notre Dame football that vote for all American teams uh, we'll, we'll see the stats and that will sort of draw their attention to it. So I, I don't know, personally, I don't know how sustainable it is to continue to make as many tackles as he has, uh, but I would say he's certainly a candidate through the first three weeks. Um, and, and for the first question on Kyron Williams, um, unless there are things on film that indicate that he's not helping the offensive line in, in their struggles and he's making things worse, then I don't think that his, his, uh, his draft stock has been affected. He's shown his abilities as a receiver despite the ground game struggles, and um, he's just as dynamic as a running back as he was before the season started. Next question is from at Coffee Dark Rose. Notre Dame's defense is top five in sacks with 13. Is this surprising considering that the defense should have more but doesn't seem to finish tackles – doesn't seem to be finishing tackles in the backfield? I see pockets collapsing and defenders getting to the quarterback, but there's a lot of missed tackles and leaving their feet too soon. Well, I'm not surprised they're up there in sacks because I think Marcus Freeman's defensive scheme kind of lends itself to it. Um, and I think they're going to get better at it. You know, Marist, having Marist Leofow would have helped. I think he would have even if he didn't get the sacks himself, he would have opened things up for other teammates, just blockers having to deal with him. But I think Botello not having played yet, uh, played significant downs, opens up another avenue to more sacks. So I'm not, not surprised. I think they'll do very well in that category. Yeah. I, I, 
the question's a little bit um, confounding to me. I, I think in my 13 sacks is a lot of sacks. So it's not surprising to me that that is good enough to be in the top five. I, I think maybe the reflection, the question is maybe a reflection of how like Notre Dame focused so many fans are and they're less aware of the context of college football. Um, and uh, I think that happens with a lot of fans. They're not necessarily thinking about what, how things work for everyone else. Um, but they see, oh, well, we missed a couple sacks here. Our, our defensive front must not be, be as good as I thought they were. But um, that that isn't necessarily the case statistically. Um, I thought the Florida State game had a lot of missed miss sacks. They were not able to bring down Jordan Travis as many times as they should have. Um, but I'm not sure that the front in terms of finishing sacks has been as bad in the last two games. Um, Notre Dame certainly has a good defensive line and can generate a lot of pressure. Um, can it do better in terms of finishing all those opportunities? Of, of course. Um, but that's why, in my opinion, the ex- expectations were so high for the defense going into the season. And lastly, a question from Scott Reed at Greedy1967. Why do you think we can never really pull off a green out? Penn State, Penn State sure can. Well, you know, he means a white out for Penn State. I don't think they've had a green out, but um, that would would be showing off if Penn State did a green out. (laughs) I I think, but I don't think they did poorly against Purdue. The Michigan was probably the first and best time I can remember in 2018 where it where they pulled it off. I think there's a couple problems. One is you got to have those outs early in the season, which they did this year, but a lot of times they haven't been. They they're like in November, let's do a green out. Well, it's going to turn into a coat out. I mean, nobody has, I mean, people don't have just a green jacket sitting around unless they've won the masters. They don't have one sitting around in the closet that they can wear to the game. So if you're going to do something out, do a coat out where everybody needs to wear a coat in November. Um, And then the other thing is, I don't know that Notre Dame's got behind these outs as much as they have maybe the last couple where they've gone on social media and kind of endorsed it. So people are like, well, am I going to look stupid if I'm, you know, the only person wearing green? So I think, you know, color coordination isn't Notre Dame's strong suit, but I thought we saw a lot of green there on Saturday. Yeah. I don't think it was a terrible effort. Um, I, we, we, this, I feel like we've been asked this question more than two times on the podcast since we started our podcast. I, I think uh, my belief is always that Notre Dame has to give shirts away to make it happen. Um, the different shades of green that Notre Dame has, has used uh, for shirts throughout the years, I think makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, also, I, I, green doesn't stand out as well as white or red, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if there's any evidence to back that up, but I, I just think it's harder to like when you think of these whiteouts or redouts or any that like, I don't, there's no one that to my knowledge that has like great success of doing green outs. I don't know. There's no team that I would think of like, okay, I I can remember seeing a a stadium in all green. Um, So maybe, maybe that has something to do with it. Um, I think, uh, I think those could all be part of the explanation, but I thought uh, rather than being reasonable, I could throw some shade at Notre Dame fans and say maybe the Notre Dame fans, don't hold themselves to the same standards that they hold the team to. If they really wanted to make a green out happen, they'd make it happen. So uh, yeah, look in the mirror on this one, Notre Dame fans. All right. That's it for today's episode of pot of gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. 
We'll be back next week with a Wisconsin review and a Cincinnati preview. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for your Notre Dame football pregame and postgame coverage needs. 